go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! Oh, it's a family show. Kids. <laughs> yes. kids. Yeah, you know, gather around, kids. We're going to listen to a podcast today. I'm old enough to remember everybody watching the same thing on TV, but I can't possibly consider everybody listening to the same podcast in one household. That's a bridge too far. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to a Matt Nakehouse presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is dispatch number six. Our mission is this. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives. Obviously, that includes being able to go to the movies. That means that our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective need to shift. However, it doesn't mean the overall film discussion has to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of the decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. You know, back when we could gather... in in actual pubs and bars and restaurants and not worry about what sort of virus we may or may not catch a bunch of local cinephiles in my fair city used to gather we would laugh we would drink we would argue dear god would we ever argue some of my favorite and most memorable arguments came thanks to today's guest who often found ways to keep me arguing for whole hours at a time and often tweeting Corey is wrong for days to follow however in a strange bit of dumb luck Something happened when time came for him to come on this podcast. I've had him on three full episodes of the podcast proper, and we've never once disagreed. Now, part of me thinks I'm denying you, dear listener, of audio gold by way of denying these feverish debates, while another part of me thinks that you might just want us both to shut up. So no matter what, you won't find out today, because again, the film we are here to discuss is one we agree on that it is well worth your time. He's contributed to Esquire, The Baffler. Corey Atat is here. How are you, man? I am good. All We're, things considered, very good. I, I like. I, I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you, do you think people would want to listen to us argue, or would they just get sick of both of us? You want to say yes, right? Because <laughs> conflict is supposed to be entertaining and all of that. But I feel like our disagreements tend to be so, like, minute and nitpicky that it would just get extremely tiring very very quickly for anybody who's not us yes and and Um, petty sometimes too yeah well you know of course it's just that's how (laughs) arguments happen i mean come on it's just it's what we do uh but yeah i wouldn't want to um i wouldn't want to subject that to somebody yeah it's, right. it's, like, it's a, it's a live it's a live experience you know the 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 five minute sax solo is nice when you're sitting in the theater but you may not want to like listen to it on your couch it, yeah exactly right. exactly on our sixth dispatch of the winchester chronicles we will be discussing stories we tell we'll be turning the record over to play the other side but first we begin with creature comforts Okay, Creature Comforts, in case you're new here, is uh, a collection of distractions that we've been uh, 
busying ourselves with while we're locked down. Um, we kind of expand beyond just film. We've been talking about TV. We've been talking about podcasts, books, you name it. Corey, get us going, man. What, uh, what's what been keeping you busy while you've been uh, in isolation? I mean, look, it's mostly movies, right? Because it, that's just all I can kind of pay attention to at the moment, for the most part. Um, I have started a rewatch of The O.C. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> holds up. It's, Does it? It's amazing. Really? Well, I mean, look, it's you, you have to take it for what it is, but it's 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 just so good. It's so good. It's like five <laughs> episodes in, and I was like, I can't believe how much drama there is already. Uh, and, and keep in mind, I've seen it before. Right. So, but it just it's good. I'm I'm not looking forward to season three so much because that one gets a little kind of dour. But but then yeah, otherwise it's it's mostly movies. Oh, hang on, hang on. let's let's talk. We, we, hold on, okay, we need to address okay. this for a minute here. Let's let's not skirt this issue. All right, all right. Um, all right. I mean, it's funny because I think every generation has their teen drama right like mm-hmm. the the you know you had the oc in the early aughts in the 90s you had beverly hills 90210 uh after mm-hmm. that i don't know like would gossip girl probably take up the mantle after that do, well, do i have I mean, my time right yeah very literally like gossip girl was cr- was co-created by the creator of um of uh, the oc so it's definitely in the lineage okay oh i guess i guess you could probably put riverdale into that basket too i was gonna say because i was watching an episode of riverdale a few weeks ago um and and yeah you know it's it's the 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 typical show of teenage angst in a local town and um kind of a star-making vehicle for a lot of that cast yeah I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Misha Barton. I remember Seth. Which Seth Adam was that? Brody. Adam yep. Brody. Seth was played by Adam yep. Brody. Right. Was Peter yep. Gallagher the dad? Am I remembering that one right? That's right. Eyebrows and all. Oh my lord. Um, and and, uh, and and yeah, an indie rock soundtrack that like you know made yep. made Death Cab for Cutie a household name. And and you're saying it holds Indeed. up, huh? When you talk about the show, you being a little old for it, the funny thing is, I mean, I was exactly the right age when, when it was airing. Right. But, of course, you know, because I was like a teenage boy, I was like, this is stupid. It's like, it's not even that it's girl stuff. It was just like, this is stupid. and I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> and then after the show ended, uh, Much Music got the rerun rights. Right. And they... And they started and they started it off by doing a literal just like marathon of all four seasons, um, just one episode after another for several days. And I happened to, you know, this was back in the day. I used to keep the TV on, and much music was kind of on in the background. And just you know, the first couple episodes were on, and I wasn't paying attention at first, and then slowly kind of got sucked into it. And then, uh, just by chance, my sister happened to have the DVDs. Um, and she was watch- she was literally watching them upstairs. So I grabbed the season one DVD and just Started you know over. went blazed right through it just so that I wasn't dealing with commercials. That's awesome. And yeah, and that's kind of how I how I came to the show. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly what happened to me with Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. Like I wasn't watching it mm-hmm. live, but they used to rerun it. Uh, like in syndication every night around supper time. So while I was yeah. doing my homework, I would just, I usually have the TV on some stupid sitcoms and then at six it would flip to 90210. And I ended up watching yeah. a lot more of those episodes than I thought I did just kind of by, <laughs> just by contact basically. That's how, that's how it goes. I mean, in, in, in this case, I think that the difference between the OC and, uh, and 90210 and kind of the real step up, um, 
it might actually be more comparable to like Dawson's Creek in a way because it's sort of it's I don't know about well written but it's very written okay. and it doesn't have this sort of after no honestly like it look uh, Dawson's Creek was written by or was created by uh, you know Kevin Williamson who did Scream right so right. there's some talent behind it and uh, and the OC had a similar thing where you've got this guy Josh Schwartz who's like a you know good funny writer like very funny writer. And the show just had this has this great um, sort of sense of humor about itself, and some of the drama is genuinely good. The pilot episode of the show is like honestly fantastic, directed by Doug Lyman, you know, oh, a, a wow. personal yes, problematic do. fave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great, and um, it, yeah. So I, I, it's one of those things where it's just like I'm watching it now, being like, you know, I liked this, you know, several ten years ago or whenever it was. Uh, when I watched it the first time, but it it holds up as being just like a very entertaining, you know, dramatic, but also human, but also silly, and and the fashion is just so California two thousand three. <laughs> it's astonishing. Very cool. Um, it's it makes me feel old in in ways that you know are probably not great, but okay. it, is what it is. The real thing is that um, you know I, I work from home. And sometimes it's just nice to have something on in the background that I don't have to pay too much attention to. Right. And in this case, because I've seen the show before, I can do that. Gotcha. Right? And so it's like I'll be like, you know, kind of glancing at it or sometimes I'll get sucked in for like 10, 15 minutes uh, when I probably should be working. But you are um, preaching to the choir, sir. It's how it is. It's uh, it's the way to it's the way to do things. Well, uh, speaking of TV, I finished off a series in between last episode and this. Um, I watched a show that I believe started on Hulu. I watched it on Prime. Um, I watched a show called The Great. Have you watched this or heard of this? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I watched the first episode and a half, and then you tapped out. Well, no, 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 no. I I didn't tap out. It okay. was uh, I was actually watching it with my mom. And then, uh, you know, she was tired, so we just paused the episode and went to bed. And I have a feeling she wasn't super into it because she okay. wasn't asking to, like, continue. Right. And it's just been it's just been one of those things I'm like, okay, I need to get back to it. I, I really enjoyed what I saw. Yeah, so, so. it's, um, for anybody who may not know yet, it's a show about um, the, the rise of Catherine the Great uh, in, in Russia, uh, played in this show by Elle Fanning. Um, in, she, of course, was married to the Emperor Peter, not Peter the Great. Peter the Great was his father. Uh, and that comes up a lot, um, that he's not Peter the Great. Um, he is played by Nicholas Holt, who... Nicholas Holt as Peter in this show might be the greatest thing that I, I've seen all year. Um, his comedic timing is just off the chart. The one takeaway from this show, besides the fact that it is just absolutely handsome and just darkly, darkly funny at every turn is the word huzzah. Uh, <laughs> it just gets thrown around in this, like no tomorrow. Every, like every three scenes, somebody usually Peter is saying huzzah. But the great thing about the way Nicholas Holt is playing this is he's got all kinds of different incant incantations for huzzah. There's sometimes where he actually exclaims it. There's sometimes where he just basically uses it as a punctuation mark. So he'd be like, I brought you an apple and it's a very delicious apple. The, the orchard I grew it from was, uh, you know, cultivated by frogs. And I'm told it's the best apple in all of Russia. Huzzah. <laughs> it's, it's those kinds of things that you just never get tired of. And 
it's another one of these shows about the politics of royalty, you know, um, kind of in that Game of Thrones way, but, um, you know, not trying to emulate Game of Thrones in, in its worst ways. It's got a great British cast, like a lot of people who I don't really know from other stuff, but who are all just like nailing what they're there to do. The guy who plays Orlo just did a cool little stint in Doctor yeah. Who um, as the master. The guy who plays the Archbishop, Adam Godley, um, they all call him Archie. Um, he's he's just really off the hook. It's it's incredible, this show, and it's all so handsome, so lush. You end up like just really hungry and really wanting to shop all at once and it's like it's 10 episodes it's like the perfect length for right now it, it, definitely that first episode was really great the uh it, it should also be noted it's it has very very similar sort of in its writing kind of stylistic similarities to the favorite mm-hmm. uh which is not an accident because it's created by the co-screenwriter of the favorite yes and the interesting thing is at first i was watching going like oh great they hired this guy to kind of like do the same thing he did before. In fact, this project that that uh, he, this was a project that he had going in other forms for a few years, and it's what got him the job of rewriting the favorite. Oh, I didn't know that. From, from what I understood, yeah. So, so in fact, this kind of predates that, and he used the favorite to be able to make this. Um, and Nicholas Holt, of course, is in uh, both. Um, and he's great in the favorite as well. It's but, uh, like he's not doing yeah. the That's what I like is that he's it's, not it's, doing it's the not, same it's thing. It's not the same. Yeah, no. it's not the same. But yeah. in in the favorite, he was also very very funny. Yes. And so clearly, you know, uh, who would have thought? But Nicholas Holt is uh, our new sort of comedy actor icon apparently clearly i mean you know he's he's been like as far as tv goes i think he's been the highlight of my year um it's (laughs) it's 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 a shame that you know if you if you know anything about history you know what happens to peter because i'm like i don't want him to leave this show but i know at a certain point he has to um and i really i really hope they find a way to keep him in it as long as possible uh what else you've been uh, keeping yourself busy with i've been watching a lot of movies there's a uh, sort of a micro, an all volunteer micro theater in New York City called Spectacle. Yeah. Uh, Spectacle Theater that uh, they have some connections to some programmers up here in Toronto, and they've been doing these Twitch streams of um, just like a lot of overlooked movies, and and uh, in some cases like you know VHS type stuff, and on Sundays they do. Uh, old you know a surprise old kung fu movie and then followed by a surprise horror movie and just a lot of stuff that you know otherwise i would never ever see they did a uh a memorial day kind of marathon of movies related to like military stuff usually with like veterans and things uh and one of them was this 1976 slasher movie called my friends need killing which is was you know i thought it was going to be kind of this you know fun silly dumb movie and it turned out to be this really raw and kind of i mean you know bad because it's like low budget and the acting's not great and everything but the uh the actual story is about a soldier who can't deal with the uh atrocities that he and his platoon committed in vietnam and he set he basically sets out to kill all of the friends that were in that platoon because they all deserve to die for what they did how old is Uh, that movie from 1976. Okay. Uh, and it's very, it's very raw. There's some stuff in it that's like, you know, a bit 
tough. There's a, there's a rape sequence that's like, you know, really harrowing. But then the movie is also, you know, intending to be harrowing. So it's not, uh, you know, you can kind of poke fun at bits in it. But the nice thing on that Twitch stream is that you've got sort of the chat on the side, which makes it feel like you've got an audience. And, uh, and people were like pretty surprised at how kind of powerful that one was. And then they followed it up with the 1981, uh, or, or later in the evening, they followed it up with the 1981 slasher, you know, horror movie, The Prowler, okay. which is about a, uh, I guess a veteran who's like killing people at this, uh, you know, at this high school graduation. Um, and he's dressed in a military uniform and has like a mask covering his face and stuff and it doesn't really have anything to do with the war but it you know it was a pretty decent decent slasher movie, okay you know not so, not, not great but right. like pretty decent somebody who's playing fast and loose with the double feature yeah. but, um, but I, de- I definitely recommend like looking up uh, spectacle uh ny that's their their thing on twitch um they're taking uh, i think some donations as well and uh and yeah just like they've got stuff almost every day and you can just tune in and watch with people well i was gonna ask uh, like have a good time beyond the beyond the donations it like do you have to pay for it no no because it's all just you know free streaming on oh, twitch wow. okay that's really cool yeah i mean people have been doing this uh not just on twitch right the uh um the neon dreams program which runs out of the royal cinema here in toronto yeah uh they've gone online for the last a couple weeks and i think they're doing it tomorrow as well are they on uh, showing, twitch as well or are they on like youtube no they're using uh another platform that's similar to like netflix party yeah um but it's it's kind of one of those but it's still you know the idea is the same it's like you watch a movie there's kind of a chat thing on the side everybody's participating it, it really it's not the same as being in a theater obviously but to the extent that you know we can watch movies with friends yeah uh, or, or even just watch movies with strangers and kind of get the experience of everyone having a good time uh it, it's really great i've really been enjoying it's the kind of thing that like to be honest i'll i wish that they would continue doing even once theaters reopen i mean uh, they, they may because you know like let's like let's be honest here like renting out a theater is a risky proposition so yeah. if it's a way to certainly if it's a way to stem the tide, if it's a way to show something that you maybe can't get a print for, um, if it's yeah. a, this, that may be what comes of this, um, even if it's not quite the same, it's it's a way to keep the vibe going to kind of, you know, keep the DJ set playing. Um, it's possible. It's it's all going to like the, the, the biggest takeaway that I've had from this whole experience is that planning for anything beyond next week is foolish totally you know totally. and and i don't yeah. i don't say that's a sound nihilistic or anything like that it's just the reality of where we are right now um yeah. well you brought up a movie so i'll bring up a movie as well i've been catching up on some of the stuff from early part of this year that started dropping on demand because i wanted to kind of just fill in some of the gaps um now that we're getting towards june and i watched one that played at um sundance and I think it played in Toronto for about a week before we closed up the whole city. Uh, I watched a movie called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Did you see this thing? Uh, no. And actually, I think that it... Uh, did it play in Toronto? Oh, it did. It did. It it, it did get a brief. It was at the Varsity. I yeah, think. for like a day. But uh, No, you know what? I keep meaning to watch it, but it's... Uh, you know, just because of the subject matter, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, I need to be in the right 
frame of mind and also have the right environment and i haven't had that line up well so yeah it's, yeah i get uh, that so when Corey says because of the subject matter it's about a 17 year old girl who discovers that she's pregnant she figures she decides quite quickly she does not want to keep the pregnancy and it's about it's it's like full on just about her trying to go through with an abortion which when you're 17 years old in america is not always that easy um it it, and it's everything from you know an one abortion clinic is not the same as another abortion clinic in terms of how they approach the 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 women who come there to the resources that they have um and and it can really throw a woman who goes there for a loop um without really getting into I don't really want to get into why I'm saying that. Like there, there is a reason. Like she, the first one that she goes to basically can't fully help her. Like they need to hand her over to another, yeah. and and then the reasons for that are varied. Um, the actor in it, the the main actor who plays the the woman, her name is um, Sydney Flanagan. I don't think I've seen her in anything else, but she's fantastic in this movie. Um, she's mostly apparently she's mostly a singer. You know what I love about a movie like this is it's not flashy it's not trying to hit you over the head with any kind of morals or anything like that it's basically just taking you by the hand and taking you through these few days of being a teenager and being so deeply out of your element because you know she's a high school kid who works at like a dollar store you know to to make ends meet and she's trying to go through this thing without the support and aid of her parents right like she's got her cousin and that's it and it's it's not at all easy and it just it takes you through it what i love about it like so much is that it's not overwritten um these the 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 two women who were were with for the most part they talk like regular teenage girls would talk there's there's sometimes where they're just not talking at all because it's a situation where they wouldn't be talking you know like if you're sitting in a bus station and you've been up for 27 hours and you've down to like 20 bucks in your pocket you're probably not going to be having a whole lot of conversation um so it's it's really really well done the director is a woman named eliza hitman um Mm -hmm. and she also wrote it um and yeah apparently it did great at sundance uh this year Yeah, yeah if you get the chance um it's it's not as dour as it seems you know what i mean no i i you're right i know i'm not i'm not worried about it being dour it's more it's more it's actually more just because of the seriousness of the subject it's Uh it's like i need the environment to like not be you know it needs to be like good Uh, yeah so it's just i i haven't this is the sad thing about theaters being closed is because that's usually what why i like going to the theater because it's like the theater creates the environment right and whereas at home i'm kind of stuck with like ah do i have to deal with my dog or you know that kind of nonsense yeah i mean it's funny because you know the like what the last one of these that i watched like this that i was catching up with of 2020 was i watched the um that ben affleck film the way back and (laughs) that film i i totally get what you're saying because that film it was it's not deeply involving it's you know it's a different kind of story it's a basketball story it's a story about you know a guy trying to get get over addiction and i've Mm -hmm. seen that story though before you know like i I know where the rhythms are going i know when i can look at my like basically when i can look at what the cat is doing and when i should be looking at the screen a movie like never rarely sometimes always 
you really need to be locked in. Otherwise, there's going to be nuance that you miss. It's kind of like, so that's where you were saying, like, the theatrical environment provides that, no matter what kind of setup mm-hmm. you have at home. It kind of reminds me of one other film I saw before they closed everything down in a theater was I saw The Assistant. and that, Oh, yeah, which another one that I missed. Yeah, yeah. But, but, like, that film's not low boil. That film is, like, barely simmering. So if you're watching that yeah. at home, you are going to tune out in a hot second um, because so much of that film is in like posture and facial expression and, and that kind of thing. So you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's so strange to say that the movies that are smaller in terms of scope are what actually really demand a black box. And yet it's absolutely mm-hmm. true we will be able to get back to it eventually i shouldn't say here's hoping we will yeah it's just a matter it's just a matter of what we just yeah, yeah it's just a matter of when we can do it all safely so in the meantime yeah. we choose feature films and we talk about them here and it's time for that on episode six uh the the feature for dispatch number six is stories we tell so come on back after this and we'll get into it come on skinny love just lay singing Stories We Tell was released in 2012. It's the second episode in a row. We're talking about a film from that year. It was directed and written by Sarah Polly, co-written by her father, Michael Polly. Stories We Tell documents Sarah Polly's family history, with a particular focus on her mother, Diane, who passed away when Sarah was just 11 years old. The story, as told by Polly's father and siblings, reveals a long-held family secret, that Sarah's parentage is in dispute. Her mother, a well-known Canadian actress and casting director, is a fascinating woman who was at the center of many stories before Sarah came into the world. Sarah's conception and upbringing may, in fact, be two separate stories, and the documentary seeks to tell both of these tales and several others along the way. Pablo Picasso once said that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth, at least the truth that is given to us to understand. In a way, that statement can also be applied to documentary filmmaking, since it is more than just a snapshot of real events, but a snapshot captured through a particular lens and cut with a certain thesis in mind. So, pop quiz hotshot, if we use stories we tell as our example, is Pablo right? Is this film a lie that makes us realize the truth, or is this film the truth? Look, in in, in, uh, the terms that that Picasso sets it, but I, I guess he's, he's right. Um, but I don't even know that I would think about, uh, something like stories we tell as a lie per se in a very literal way. This, this, the film is kind of doing what the title says it's doing, which is it's about stories we tell and it's about how we craft narratives of our lives. Um, and the relationship between fact and truth and all of that is almost beside the point because it's about what people experience and what they remember of those experiences and what they remember about how they felt about those experiences and how they feel about those experiences now and how all of those things kind of bounce off each other and bump, bump up against each other. I honestly don't know that there's another movie that I can think of that does what this film does in the way that it does without kind of, let's say, being academic about it. 
Now, I I do believe that this film is what Picasso described as a lie that realizes the truth, because we'll get to it in a little bit, but there there is something, there's a trick that this film uses to get mm-hmm. its point across. Mm-hmm. And one could say that using that trick, that they're manipulating the truth. But that gets back to what you were saying in terms of how this film is, at the end of the day, really about storytelling, both in terms of what we tell other people and what we tell ourselves, and the honesty involved in that. So while this particular trick and while the stories that we tell other people and tell ourselves may not be completely factual, there is at the heart of it an honesty that needs to still be honored. And I think that the lie that this film employs still facilitates an honest result. Um, In a broad sense, what do you love about this movie? Uh, everything about it. Uh, it's, I, I, I rewatched it last night and it's the first time I'd seen it in several years. Uh, and it just was just as powerful. I think it's a movie of sort of very deep introspection, um, without being sort of overly memoiristic about it. Uh, you know, Sarah Pauly's voice doesn't come into things all that much. Uh, except for the fact that she directed the movie. And so she chose everything that went into it and she filmed the stuff that's in it. So, you know, that's her voice, but she's not kind of hammering you in, in the normal way. I love the characters that are in the, in the movie, uh, you know, her siblings and, and the family friends and, and all of those people, her, her father. And then, you know, we can give it away like her biological father. They're, they're all just fascinating, um, figures and it's not even just that they're good storytellers it's that their perspectives on things are each sort of unique and interesting um it's funny i I remember when it came out there was a lot of talk kind of comparing the movie to like you know rashomon and, and that sort of thing about how people's recollections of events are are extremely subjective and often uh, really bump up against each other. Sure. And it, the interesting thing in this movie is that that doesn't happen a lot. Like it doesn't happen very much. Uh, for the most part, people broadly agree on the facts of things that happen. Um, there's some kind of disputes and there's some different emphases, emphases uh, placed on, on various events. But that's interesting too, because, you know, if you have, uh, two characters who are having an affair, they have an experience of a situation that's specific to them. It's not that the facts are different. It's that the experience is shared between them. And the experience of the couple in the marriage, that's between them. And the experience of the mother and her kids, that's between them. And to me, that's the thing that the movie gets at that's really interesting. It's not so much sort of competing narratives as it is uh, the ways in which people connect with each other. And, and to that end, the most interesting thing about the movie to me is that, you know, this is a movie about a family story and all of that, but really what it, what it is, is it's a reconstruction of Sarah Pauly's mother on the screen, a person who Sarah Pauly herself was young enough when her mother passed away that she probably doesn't have a whole lot of memories of her mother. And so she, she has to, uh, 
piece together who her mother was and how she should feel about her mother and the impression that her mother gave off from other people. And the act of making this movie is sort of her creating this enclosed document of like, here, here was, here is my impression of my mother, despite the fact that my impression is made up actually of other people's impressions. For, for all those reasons, um, is, 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 a, is why I love this as well. I was a teeny bit late to this movie, which is to say that, um, you know, there's a movie that came out in 2012 and I didn't get a chance to see it until about January of the next year. Um, mm-hmm. and I really wish I'd seen it before time came to do like year end lists and that kind of thing. Cause this would have made this, if it wasn't the top film of 2012 for me, it, it was certainly a top five film yeah. in a year that was really good for movies. Like this is the I, same year as, as movies like Amour was this year and the imposter was that year. Moonrise kingdom was that year, the master. Um, there was a lot of really great stories that year, but this was literally in the way that people relay narrative from one to another and to themselves. Um, I think very, very sober look in the mirror in terms of how stories are told. And I mean, that comes up a lot, like, once or twice within the scope of this film, somebody asks Sarah, what is your movie about? And she says, I want to get into how we tell stories and how we relay stories. And it's actually kind of funny because her brother, you know, to be a bit of a twerp, he gets halfway through her thesis and he's like, is this a good angle for me? Yeah. You know, know, it's funny. I was talking with somebody else uh, with a friend of mine about precisely that scene. And, and what's interesting is that when, Whenever she in the documentary speaks about what the documentary is about, she actually gives different reasons and they're all very vague. Right. Uh, and the movie does do all of those things. It's about memory. It's about, you know, documenting her mother. Like she brings all of this stuff into the movie. But I think when she includes that scene of her brother kind of making a joke of it, it's because she herself sort of recognizes that to kind of sum up what she's doing again, in sort of an academic, like, well, my film is a meditation on memory and the way that we tell stories. It's like, I mean, yeah, thematically that's all great. And, and it's important to explore that, but that's very broad. A lot of movies do those things. Yeah. What's interesting about her movie is the specific memories that she's looking for. The fact that they're not her own memories, the fact that, uh, that she's compiled all of these stories and she's compiled them in different ways. So, you know, her father is credited as a co-writer of the film. And that's because a large part of the narration of the film is him reading from this, uh, sort of, uh, memoir of sorts that he's been writing. Uh, and, you know, she takes him into a studio and he's recording it professionally and he was an actor so and he's British. So he has this wonderful voice and provides great narration, but that's not the only narration that he provides because he's also interviewed in the film. Yes. And so, so the film is jumping between these various less guarded moments, more guarded. So you can say that his narration is quite guarded because he's written it down and he's perform. It, it's literally a performance. Whereas when he's sitting down and being interviewed by her, he's a bit more kind of open with things in certain ways. And then at one point she, you know, she's talking to him, asking him about, uh, you know, what he said to 
his wife before she died, like w w when she was on her deathbed, what he said to her when he said his goodbyes and he begins to break down and then he sort of realizes that he's broken down and he com he comments on the fact that there was no acting there mm. that she she kind of elicited a moment that he completely let down his guard and then of course it goes back up and he starts making jokes again every aspect of the film is revealing about people it's revealing about sarah Pauli. it's revealing about how we generally sort of like to construct our identities and our our notions of the people around us and of ourselves. There's, um, you know, I, I've heard criticisms of the film uh, that I don't really buy that have to do with, you know, Sarah Pauli's kind of lack of interrogation of herself and things that she leaves out of the movie uh, in terms of her own life. Anybody who knows anything about Sarah Pauli knows that she also like emancipated herself when she was a teenager and you know things weren't were not uncomplicated no, in but that I, family but all the same that's and, that's not the story that she's out to tell and and, a, and that that I don't think is is a fair criticism because backing up to what we were saying before in terms of her trying to declare her thesis and declare her, her, you know, mission for this film and how it changes and how her brother jokes about it and, and such. Um, I think that actually cuts to something bigger in terms of when a documentarian sets out to tell a story, I, I would be willing to bet that at least half the time they're not completely sure what story they're out to tell. Like there are, sure all kinds of examples about documentaries that started out as being about one thing that turned into something very, very different, be just out of dumb luck. Um, see yeah. capturing the Freedmans for, for a really big example. And right. I think that actually dials down to the quote from Michael almost off the very top of the story. Like once he gets in and gets settled, he has a great quote at the beginning of this film, and I'm going to read it in its complete form because I think it summarizes it the best. And he says, when you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but rather a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over rapids and all around are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or someone else. It should be mentioned, he didn't write that. That no. was uh, a quote from Alias Grace. Interestingly, Sarah Pauli would, uh, her next project actually would be, would Alias be Grace. adaptation of Alias Grace. Yeah, which is, so she, which is also kind really of, good. <laughs> Um, Things are very set out with her, you know, yeah. she's, uh, she knows what she's doing. Um, but I mean, I, I believe that this story proves that, that like, I, you know, I, I don't think that Sarah Pauly was out to create one of the best films of the decade and to create something that would really even be all that cinematic when she first sat down to compile this story of this one part of her life you know like yeah we could we could have a whole 10 part sarah Pauli feature if we wanted to in terms of her activism her work as a juvenile actor we could get into the what if of her taking the the almost famous role or not but this was the particular chapter that she chose to tell sure because it lent itself to the broader themes. I think the re the reason that I don't 
totally dismiss the criticism. Uh, and it's the reason that I was mentioning her relationship, her sort of somewhat complicated relationship with her father, is that there's moments in the movie that hint at, like, they had issues between each other that had nothing to do with the story that's being told in this film. Mm. Uh, but, you know, he talks about, like, when she told him about her, that she sort of found out about her real parentage, that there was kind of a moment that they shared that was the closest they'd been in years. And, you know, if you don't know other things about her, then it's only framed within the context of understanding what you see in on the screen, right? right. And I think that that part of the criticism that was made about, you know, by some people, the movie was fairly universally acclaimed, but some people kind of had the issue that there came a point where it would have been incumbent on her to sort of self-interrogate a little bit, to offer kind of a little bit more of an understanding of why it is that this story needed to be a documentary. Now, I personally don't subscribe to that criticism. There are a lot of documentaries out there, even very good ones, that are essentially looking for some grand narrative that will be a hook to people. And this one certainly has it. Like people in the in the movie comment on like what a good story it is. Yeah, Michael but, comments on it, which I mean is really it's kind of tender to hear him say that this is a great story because Yeah. Because he's his, an injured party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, given his like, it's. I'm sure now he thinks it's a great story. At the time, he probably didn't. But hearing well, he, him, he hearing, says it's so funny because he says in the documentary that after he learned it, very quickly he started to be like, "Wait a second, this is a great story," and yeah. then he started writing it down. Yeah. Um. But but the my point is more that like, so it has that hook to it. She doesn't rest on it being just a good story. She's not resting on it being like, oh, I found this, like, these cute people on the street, so I'm going to make a documentary about them. Uh, and, you know, people like seeing cute things or, or horrifying things or whatever. It's much more about what can I do with this doc? What can I do with this documentary formally, which will sort of open up the possibilities of how we interact with these sorts of stories generally, but also, you know, more specifically like kind of family stories, yeah. which become legend uh, within families and within sort of friend circles. Um, it's, it's the way that she leverages form to do those things that I think is really, really remarkable. It's it, it, really watching it last night. I, I was thinking like, I, I can't think of another film, you know, documentary or or um, or fiction that that sort of plays with things in quite the way that she is uh, doing in this film. Yeah, um, I, I mean, mean we, we can talk about the the gambit that she uses if you if you'd like. Well, yeah, like we've we've kind of touched on that once or twice. So let's we may as well get that get that here, and, and that is that at one point the you know we start talking about like we start moving off. The point that um, Michael Polly is not Sarah Polly's birth father, that it's actually a gentleman who her mother had an affair with in Montreal, um, a guy named Harry Gulkin, who the second you see him, you're like, yep, that's her dad. Um, early on in this film, we have 
introduced Michael Pauly's affection for this high Super 8 camera that he got when when, they, when he was like a newlywed with with Diane Pauly and how you know he'd be filming his friends or family and then his attention would drift and he'd suddenly be like looking at the the fields or the roofs or something like that and he wasn't that great of a of a of a you know amateur filmmaker but there is actually family footage and backyard footage of the Pauly family in you know just really lively kind of stuff and kind of old movie stuff that uh you know used to be more captured like now i'm sure like it's it's weird to see that now and think that life was captured in fragments because now it seems like so much more of life is captured um and and, and you can just like keep on capturing it to your heart's content and and publish it as much as you want once upon a time it was much more staccato in terms of its rhythm um but because of this Polly Sarah Polly decides to use that to her advantage and stages um, memories, both her own and those that are being described by her family and by Harry of how they met and how things happened at this bar and this party and this trip and whatever. And she stages it with actors using the same sort of Super 8 camera that generally matches the footage that Michael captured when he was younger. Now, as soon as you see it and you've seen it already, you can really spot the trick. Well, <laughs> like, you, know, you, you, you spot it because you can tell that the actors are different. And yeah. well, th- this is, this is the interesting thing, right? But also, it's, but also just because it's being done with a filmmaker's eye, you know, that that's the problem is you hand a, oh, you sure, hand a super sure, eight sure. camera to Michael Pauly in 1970, whatever, and have him film. And it's going to look yeah, one but, way you hand it but, to anybody who's ever like learned how to use a camera. It's going to look very different. Totally. But here's the thing, right? Is that you say that, but that's because you know it. Yeah. Right. But when I first saw the movie, none of that occurred to me. Oh no, I didn't know. And, and it's weird. It's weird rewatching it because it's never mind what you're talking about, which is the filmmaker's eye. There's footage that actually just straight up doesn't make sense that it would exist. Yes. Like there's footage where, where you're looking at it, like, especially the stuff with Harry where you're like, wait a second. Like he wasn't around with the camera. Is this somebody else's camera? Like what's going, there's no way that this footage exists. Yeah. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, it is a trick. Yeah. There, there's definitely a trick in, in what she's doing. Yeah. But I think the trick is less on her sort of like manipulatively, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but like manipulatively, um, sort of inserting this old, this fake old footage and uh, that looks just like the real thing. And and you wouldn't know the difference, right? Right. As opposed to this, where, I mean, look, if you're actually paying attention, you're like, I mean, that actress doesn't really look like her mom. Um, she looks somewhat close to her mom, but not enough. Whereas like, but, but the, the thing is when you first watch the documentary, you're not expecting that a documentarian is going to do that. Uh, and so you just kind of accept, like maybe your brain quickly goes, is that her mom? Oh yeah, I guess she looks different because she's a bit older or something. Like you, you don't put those things together. Which I mean, you know what? What what's actually genius about that is think about it this way: if somebody's telling you a story and you have no reason to doubt that they're making it up, you go with it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you're right. eventually your your cynicism may pop up if something doesn't add up or if they say something deliberate that you know cannot possibly be true. But when somebody right. starts telling you a tale, you just trust them and you go where they take you, which is what 
she's she's out to do you know like if by showing you this footage and by framing it as archival footage and not recreation you just go with it it's not until late in the game that they deliberately pan over and show you that it was all a trick and on the one hand you're like oh and, but it's it, you know it's it's not a twist I was paying attention to that this time because I know exactly the moment you're talking about. And 100%, that's the moment when I first saw the movie that I was like, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Except that I was watching it this time being like, okay, why was this the moment that revealed that? Because weirdly, the moment that shows it is a moment where she's filming the current day uh, stuff like the, the she, she's not filming the actors or something. Right. No. Yeah. And so, and so, and then you think back and you're like, well, there was actually already a lot of footage in the movie that was just super eight footage of her, like siblings just hanging out and stuff. And you're like, why didn't I put together before that? She's been shooting super eight the whole time. I mean, I, her, I convers- think- her conversation with Harry, where he tells her I'm your father, that's yeah. all in a super eight recreation. And they're mouthing some of the stuff that they're saying. And right. yet we don't register it in that moment. It's almost like you register it as her I'm I'm trying to think back to when I first saw it but I guess it's that you're registering it as her recreating this stuff to look like right yeah yeah that's true but but it's it's this amazing it's this amazing thing because again you know you can frame it in in the sort of the artist's lie kind of thing but I think that it has more to do with again if if you think about the movie as her sort of reconstructing not just the story but this person at the heart of the story who's no longer here to tell it and uh and and you think about the fact that like well you know a lot of the footage of those important moments of her life wouldn't exist right and this is a documentary and what we want to do and we have some old movie footage and what we want to do is basically an impression of who this person was and what better way to do that than through these sort of i wouldn't even call them reenactments right because they're not reenacting specific things they're just sort of characters being goofy or whatever and it's like to to mix that in with the real footage is to suggest that not that all of it has carries the same veracity right like it's not that it's all the same level of truth but that that's not actually important that what's important is this larger impression that you're getting of this person and you could do it through just showing the scant old footage that exists plus you know her family members just saying things about how her mom was peppy or you can record a scene where a woman who looks like her mom is you know being peppy and being the life of the party and why not do the, the the latter? It's certainly more fun, and it certainly leaves more of an impression on the audience. It so does. That the audi- so that the audience feels like you at the by the end of the movie, you feel like you know uh, her mom. Very much what Polly is out to do with this movie is she is out in terms of just not not only her mother but her father, both of her father, her the father who raised her and her birth father. She's out to paint pictures of who these people were before she entered the story. And yes, you know, yeah, you can very easily just do that with words. You can very easily reminisce about where I met your mom and how it was and whatever. Or you can paint an actual portrait of who these people were. And yeah, if you've already got a sketch in the form of some archival footage 
somewhere somehow. Why not? You know, you're not more. Fill out the sketch. Yeah, you're you're not paint 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 it in with some watercolor. Exactly, and that's why I I would say that the trick is not really a trick. I mean, it's 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 a technique. It's not actually a rug pull twist or anything like that. Even though the first time you see this movie, it really feels that way. Like first of all, late in the game. Both Michael and Harry have interesting statements on the story. You know, like Harry, the one, it's kind of crazy because the one little bomb I'll throw at this narrative is Harry really seems to be wanting to reclaim this narrative. You know, like you really get that impression. And I mean, in 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 a sad little way, you can understand why, because he's been boxed out of the story of a very prominent person for a very, very long time. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, all the same, sorry, dude, it's, it's, you know, it's the 21st century and you know, it's, it's not a man's world anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I never got the impression that that was so much his issue as, as you know, everyone else around, uh, around her, around Polly's mom, and 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 that had more of an impression of the open things in her life, including her marriage, her relationship with her kids, all of those things. Well, I mean, it, it's it's not his it's not his issue. Like it just it seems like it's his axe to grind, and maybe that's coming from well, the fact that he's the I, I one mean, ma- that he he wants to make this public where Sarah does not. Look, the public part of it definitely has to do with you know wanting to tell the story, but then again. I mean, you can say, say say the same thing about Sarah Polly. Why is she the one who, at the end of the day, not only got him not to put out her story in the document? So this is all in the documentary. Yeah, she gets him not to publish the story. She gets a reporter not to publish the story, and she takes her dad's memoir and incorporates it into her own movie that she ultimately has editorial control over. Because so, if you want to talk about somebody having like control over other people's stories. Interestingly, Sarah Pauly does that to everyone else. While this is like un- undeniably Diane Pauly's story, this is also very, very, yes. very much Sarah Pauly's story. Like she is the common, sure. she is the common element between Harry and Michael and Diane and all but, of this. She is, she is where the Venn diagram her, overlaps. But that's her story, but that's her story related to her. Right. right. So, for example, in in Harry's case, there's some relation to to Sarah because you know it's it's his biological daughter. He didn't get to have a relationship. Now he has something of a relationship with her. Although we should mention he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, but but what he says, I think, is is selfish, but also right. Oh yeah. Uh, in a certain way, which is that the thing for him is not all of the larger stuff. No. It's that he was desperately in love with this woman and they had a relationship with each other that largely was secret. Yes. Uh, and so he's sort of saying like, look, the, all of these feelings of love and all of that, that's mine. And, and I want to be able to express that myself. Yeah. Right. And to express, you know, uh, Diane's not around, unfortunately, but to the extent that somebody can give a window into what our relationship was like, this this relationship that he at least says was very loving and, you know, fraught because of how how intense it was. Um, it, but, the, but the interesting thing, right, is that he, he talks about all of that. He goes on this, this sort of philosophical 
somewhat self-serving philosophical kind of thing about how that element at the very least is his story uh, to tell. Yeah. And yes, that, that part of the reason that he wants to tell it is because when you have those feelings, you want it to be validated publicly and all that he goes through all of that. And then literally that's the last time you see him. And not long after that point, there is a moment, uh, this really touching montage that she does uh, in the movie of, of all the various people who have shown up in, in the film, all the talking heads, sort of taking a moment of, moment of silence to kind of remember her, her mom. And there, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things in that. First off, we don't know the context of where she got that footage. For all I know, people that was just in moments where people were waiting for her to set up the camera or something, yeah. right? So, so who the hell knows about that? But almost pointedly, she does not include Harry in that scene of people remembering her mom, which is an interesting choice. And it's the kind of thing that this is why, again, I, I don't totally dismiss the criticism of her because it's the kind of moment where you go, well, now you're basically saying that like y- y- you didn't have to narrate it, but you've basically said his perspective on this is something I don't agree with. And in fact, I'm going to downgrade his relationship to my mom and to me. I don't criticize her for this. Other no. people do. But I just, I, to me, it's almost the opposite. It's the opposite of a criticism. It's fascinating to me that because of how close and raw these emotions are for Polly, that this is how she chose to deal with it. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not judging it. No. You know, she, she, you, you get the sense in the film that her relationship with Harry is a little bit complicated because he's more gung ho about it than she is. Yeah. Right? I mean, and that's and like really, it's, like, it's fascinating. It's, it's so it's, you, you don't see that in, in movies. No, I mean, she, like, let's, let's be honest. She did not have to include him. You know, like, no, and I mean, is, she didn't have to include anybody. No, and this is what we get down to. I mean, you know, Michael touches on this point at a certain at a certain stage when he talks about how this story is now hers in the way that she chooses to edit it. You know, yes. because she is ultimately going to be, even though she's hearing this story through, you know, whatever it is, ten or twelve people, this will ultimately be her story because she has the final say in terms of who says what and how they say it and when they say it. You know, it, it even comes up yeah. to there's there's a whole digression into Diane Polly's first marriage yeah. um, that did not need to be included. Um, it's it's incredibly important in terms of shaping what this woman went through in her life. But, yeah. you know, it, it, it did not need to be there. And the fact that Sarah Polly chooses to include it when she chooses to include it speaks volumes about how Sarah Polly wanted to tell this story. So, no, yeah. she did not have to include Harry and she did not of have course. to include everything from Harry's more introspective moments, which are quite valid, to his more selfish moments, which – you know, yeah, they're they're probably there to paint a picture of how she sees his involvement. But I mean, he is, in a way, he's he's right when in the one of the last things he says when he talks about in any narrative, you have the primary person, then you have yeah. the secondary people who are most affected, and then you start to get tertiary characters and so on yes. and so on, and the circles broaden out. And she sort of cuts to like the yeah. various people. Yeah, it, it's 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 actually like it's just wonderful. Uh, it's not serendipitous, but it's just like a, a wonderful observation on her part that she could use that in that way. I yeah. mean, this, this this gets back to what I think is so remarkable about the movie is that at every point in the film, from 
the in terms of the things that she includes, the way that she includes them, uh, the things that she filmed for it. It, it. It's all there to sort of highlight uh, th- those kind of complexities and, and not just highlight them, but sort of demonstrate them. Right. Um, the, the stuff about her, her mother's first marriage. I mean, I suppose she didn't need to include it, but the reason that she does is because again, the story is not a, the story is not just a story about, you know, her parentage, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a story about this woman and the things that she feels are relevant to understanding who this woman was. And so when, you start off the movie and it's all about how she had this bright life and it was all joyous and she was the life of the party and maybe that was sort of compensating for some insecurities and whatever and then later in the movie it's only way later in the movie that you realize like oh well some of those insecurities might have had to do with this horrible experience that she went through yeah and it was um, it was a lot later than i remember too like i I was way far into the movie i was when i was watching it the other day i was thinking i was like when do we talk about her losing custody i was like oh shit there it is i'm like like, we got like 20 minutes to go. (laughs) It's such an amazing choice to put it that far into the movie because, because what she's effectively doing, right. Is saying you have this understanding of this person based on what I've told you about them so far. Right. And you think that you're getting a full portrait, except when you think about what that portrait is, it's very superficial. Uh, it is a lot of descriptions about how she was happy and how whatever, right? And the moment that you get that element of backstory, I mean, it's like any good novel or something, right? It's like you get this moment of backstory that probably in itself doesn't even, inca- I mean, not even probably, surely doesn't encapsulate everything about her and her personality and where she was in life. But it's enough to suggest sort of a depth of character in her mm-hmm. that prior to that point, you don't quite have. And the most interesting thing about it is that you don't get very much. I mean, again, you don't have her words. All you get is like how horrible that situation was. And you have people sort of saying that it sort of, you know, made her insecure and all of these things. It, it's, it's such a transference of, of emotions and empathy and, and ideas that, when you break it down, you kind of realize like, well, in truth, we still don't really know much about Diane. No. We don't know really what she was thinking. If, if the idea of the movie is to create this impression of a person based on the memories of other people, uh, the stories of other people, you can never – and they talk about this in the film. You can never touch bottom. No. Right? You, you can't – I mean, Harry says this. You can't touch bottom. She wants to paint a more and more and more complex version of her mother to – basically reanimate her mother yeah to make I mean, her mother a person in her life right and it's yeah. like and and it's the it's the it's such an it's such a beautiful thing for a daughter who lost her mother at a young age to try to bring her mother back to life in that way yeah and that's, I mean, that's why this story, that's why this film is not called stories. We finish it's, it's, no, you know, and, and that's, that's key to it all. And yeah, it it's, it's listen, if anybody wants to get a clear picture of what Sarah Polly and probably Michael Polly think of her mother, like just tell, like remind yourself that this is a loving portrait of an unfaithful marriage. And 
Yes. Those two things don't normally go together. No. You know, and yet there is no normally point. In, yeah. There is no point in this story where you say to yourself that this is not a film told with utmost love. And that is extremely rare for something like this. Yeah. Um, which brings yeah. us to the, to the point of this whole conversation, which when I've been doing these Winchester Chronicles of talking about the decade gone by, I've been trying to contextualize these beyond the fact of these are films that I didn't talk about the first time around. So yeah. I've been trying to frame them in terms of the decade gone by. So what is it for you about stories we tell that encapsulates the 2010s? I don't know that the movie for me, encapsulates any particular decade. It's very reflective of a certain kind of cinematic or artistic trend that's much more memoiristic and introspective and deals with not memory as like some hypothetical concept, but as something that actually affects people. Mm. You know, I don't know to say that the 2010s were marked by that sort of thinking exactly. Okay. But I think that coming when the film did and given, you know, just the events of the world, I, I often think that people could use a lot more of that. People could use a lot more, you know, n not self-involvement, but, but genuine introspection. Sure. And, and genuine sort of empathy and understanding for other people's, um, uh, not just their literal experiences but their experience of things yeah right and yeah. to lend credence to that and 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 i just think that that's something that's very very important and the best films do that R really we could use a lot more of that i think i, I agree yeah. i when i thought about my own question i uh you know now this this may be more related to the fact that the the decade gone by was you know the the first decade of my real adulthood where i went you know age 32 to right. 41 um but it seems to me that we reached a place in the last 10 years where honesty in storytelling be it either factual to the world or fictional um you know for for, for purposes of entertainment that honesty started to take a back seat and that we started to drift beyond spinning a story to serve our own purpose into denying right. the actual fact of the matter. Um, sure. And that I believe that there is still an importance uh, of honesty in what we tell each other and what we tell the world. You know, we, we, we spent a long time dealing with the fact that this film uses a fictional device to tell its tale. And yet at no point would anybody say that this film is dishonest? It's not entirely factual, but it is not dishonest because every time it, you know, creates a visual fiction, it's still in the service of the truth. And that's been going away. For the last, like in in the last decade, again, maybe it's just that yeah. I'm noticing it more because I'm of the age where I can see it. Maybe it's you know to a certain degree, I'm sure it's always been there, but now especially, like we, so many of us seem to get into this headspace of telling ourselves what we need to tell ourselves to either further our own cause or even just be able to look ourselves in the mirror, and that's going to screw things up 
real fast if it hasn't already. Yeah. And I think that that's what this movie wants to remind us is that even though we may have different perceptions of the same thing or how it happened, I mean, you know, there's, there's a point in this movie where they're talking about Diane's funeral and Michael Pauly cannot remember a conversation that another person says they had, you know, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, And he's certainly not refuting it. Like that's the beauty of, Michael Polly in that moment is he's not saying no, I didn't talk to that person. He's saying I no. I just it's just why? Why would he? Why would he why remember would he, that? Yeah, and 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 he and and, the, and he probably wouldn't. You know that that's the thing is yeah, that of course the, the, the funeral it, of a loved one is, is usually a blur. But that's yeah, one person's experience is not another's, right. and, and, and that's you the, have to have empathy for that. And that's the key in this moment is is that within this film, it's trying to you know like a dishonest person would say i no that did not happen that person they're they're making shit up they're using you know to coin the phrase of this last decade alternative facts um yeah. which is not well, a thing yeah. um but that's yeah. you know i think that when i think about this last decade and what this film's place is within it is there is a very very deep importance of honesty in how we look at the world and how we look tell our stories and if we let yeah. that go we are going to be in very big trouble if we're not already we yeah. end these pieces with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep um you could cory tad what would be your souvenir from uh, stories we tell yeah give me that super eight camera yeah me too man yeah come on who the, who, the, who doesn't want a Super 8 camera? I absolutely want a Super 8 camera. I mean, I know you can create the same sort of thing with like filters. No, and no, 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 no. I, I want the, yeah, no, analog you, for you, life, baby. You you can't, you can't, re- especially not Super 8. You can't recreate it. It's not possible because one of the, one of the great things about Super 8 compared to even like, you know, 35, 35 has its like peculiarities, but the cameras are bigger and they're more stable and, you know, so you can really like make a, a digital movie look like film and not really tell the difference. The difference with Super 8 is that those cameras don't work that well. <laughs> <laughs> like they work well enough, but they don't work that well. Right. And so and so you just get all these weird bumps and frame stutters and like all these things that like a computer just can't simulate without it looking like a simulation. And it's just the the footage in the movie looks so good. And the fact that like she has newer footage, which must be on a newer stock or, or maybe it wasn't, and maybe it was like expired stock or something, but she has that up against like really old footage and it all kind of matches because it's all similarly shitty. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's like, no. give me that camera. I want that camera. But give me the camera. Give, get, send me the film. I don't know where, <laughs> where I have to send it to process it, but I'm sure there's somebody who processes it. It's uh, yeah, I, I need that stuff in my life. Dear listener, if we get Corey talking about cameras and film stock, we'll be here for another two episodes. So I'm going to spare you some. Oh, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, that listen, if, if, if you are not convinced to check out this documentary by now, and the beauty of it is we can tell you what it's about without actually spoiling the experience. And I think that's the no, mark. No, not at all. That's yeah. the mark of a really great story. Um, please check out Stories We Tell. It's available all over the place. Um, and it's a great film, certainly one of the best of the last decade. And I'm so grateful. Um for Corey Tad bringing it up. Let us know what you think of this movie, um, what you think of this conversation. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Sarah Polly's stories we tell? Uh, we're going to take a quick break and flip the record over. So come on back after this. We're uh, going to play the other side.
We're back. He's Corey Tad. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Winchester Chronicles Dispatch number six. We've been talking about Sarah Pauli's stories we tell. Uh, um, and of course, that lends itself to all kinds of other ideas, both fact and fiction uh, for another side. Uh, Mr. Tad, get us started. What was one of the first uh, films you thought about that would make a good uh, companion uh, one way or another with stories we tell? I mean, this is maybe a cheat, but the the real companion piece to this movie is Sarah Pauli's own film, Take This Waltz, because that's also similarly a movie about a woman who, uh, in this case, doesn't actually technically have an affair, but really, really wants to, um, and then ends up leaving her husband for uh, for that affair or to, to whatever consummate that other relationship. Look, I think it's a great it's a great film. It has some kind of issues here and there, but it's it's really really great. Michelle Williams stars in it, uh, and she's wonderful. Seth Rogen is great. Luke Kirby is basically like the sexiest person who's ever existed in that movie. Um, it's got Sarah Silverman as well, which is really nice. Uh, and it's shot and set in Toronto. So, you know, and it makes Toronto look gorgeous. Um, but the, the reason that I mention it as a companion piece is not just because it, the similarities in plot, but specifically because the movie was made and came out in 2011. This was at, the time uh, that I think she had split up with her husband, Sarah Pauly, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which is something that's referenced in stories we tell, how all the daughters kind of split up after they learned about, um, <laughs> split up with their husbands after they learned about uh, the, her mom's secret. Um, right. And, 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 and obviously then, crucially, it comes after she learned about her parentage. And I think that you know, I, I don't know to speak to Sarah Pauli's own, you know, issues with maybe be infidelity or whatever. I have no idea about that stuff in her life. Um, I actually honestly think that this movie, Take This Waltz, uh, in that light can be seen as her sort of doing an exercise in empathy for what it's like to, at the very least, want to carry out an affair with somebody. Yeah. And I think I think that, you know, obviously it's a reflection on Polly's own uh, mindset. But I, I genuinely think that, uh, you know, after I saw Stories We Tell and I rewatched Take This Waltz, I was like, this is clearly informed by her mother and by her mother being cooped up in a in a relationship that was, you know, loving. Right. But not quite enough, like not quite enough juice there. Yeah. And I mean, it's a film that one of the first shots we see is of a wife leaning against an oven door, you know, which yeah. listen, I'm married to a baker. I have never once seen her lean against the oven door. Yeah. It's clear that that visual is meant to, to evoke something. I mean, she's not leaning against the oven door in a, in a sadistic way yeah. of trying to like, you know, get herself some paint. She just wants to, feel something like obviously like feel literally some warmth yeah. um and you can interpret that in any way you want yes yes i i just think it's i mean it, like i said it's a really really lovely movie and it's uh you know that's another one i remember at the time um there were criticisms you know largely by male critics uh who basically complained that like this woman's kind of awful to her really really nice husband 
uh, sort of what she does to him. And it's weird that this, and basically complaining that the movie was showing empathy toward her. And I'm just like, way to miss the point about what film can do, yeah. which is to yeah. make you feel empathy for a person's experience. And in this case, it's not like she's setting out to hurt her husband, but people hurt people. Yeah. My first thought of another side was I went back to what I talked about with how this, how stories we tell encapsulates the decade of the importance of honesty and storytelling. And I think you and I've had this conversation at one point or another. So now we're going to have it for, for posterity. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the flip of that. I went to what I call a dishonest story um, to a documentary, an Oscar-winning documentary at that. Uh, uh, also from the last decade, Searching for Sugar Man oh, yes. is a uh, right. Yep, right. because that is a uh, as I said, it's an award-winning documentary um, about the career and disappearance of Sixto Rodriguez. Uh, he usually just goes by Rodriguez. Uh, that came out oh, the same year. That was in 2012. Um, so it is, yeah, it's a, it's a documentary about this, the, the singer who kind of vanished off the radar and these two music enthusiasts who go looking for him and want to see what's become of him. And he becomes, you know, a huge, not a huge, a moderate success again. Um, it's listen. It is a it's a wonderful film. It's a charming film. It's an engaging film. It's it's a good story. It's also complete bollocks because while this is absolutely these two people's experience in trying to track down this dude and maybe up his profile, to suggest that this guy was a basically a hermit the way that this film does is absolute bullshit because he wasn't and completely skirts the fact that the guy was an opening act on concert tours in the 80s like they basically frame it as here was this guy you know who was a who was a moderate hit in the 60s and 70s and then just ghosted um which is not true um and while it did take some doing for them to figure out where he was and what he was up to and try to kind of bring him back into the spotlight that's true but that's also just because they're both basically borderline incompetent because he was still making money at the time. And it shouldn't have been that hard to find this guy. Yeah. Um, it's so it is their truth for sure. But it is, you know, the, and this was what I wrote about it at the time. And maybe I'll, I'll provide a link to this in the show notes. While it is a true story, it is not an honest story in terms of the life and times of Sixo Rodriguez. Yeah, I mean, Searching for Sugar Man is a, a specific type of documentary that I'm not a huge fan of, which is like, you know, here's this musical artist that like was somewhat popular, or any artist or any person, and we're going to like show you why that why they matter. And it's usually just a case of like the filmmaker just really likes them, and they're trying to. Con- it's like it's like uh, it's like somebody did a professional version of when you're like at the bar and you're badgering your friend into watching or listening to something, right? Um, and so I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that stuff, and it's it's always very exaggerated. Like I remember among the issues that I had with that movie and it, it gets at the dishonesty that you're talking about is where you have like one or two like music execs or something who are like, 
this guy was like the next Dylan. Like he was as good as Dylan, maybe even better or whatever. I don't remember specifically what they're saying, but like, I just remember the Dylan comparison and being like, you know what? I mean, they're playing some of his music in this movie and, uh, it's not Dylan. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's like, you, you, you can try and tell me that all you want, but like, I, I know what salesman bluster looks like and, and that's what yeah. this feels like. And, yeah. um, so, so, you know, there's the aspect of me just not being into that type of documentary, but there, I think it could have been a, com- a compelling story of that type if it had just been like, Hey, you know, we remembered this guy who we really liked and we found out that he kind of went on to have this sort of small career where he toured in a couple of places uh, overseas and opened for a bunch of people. And lately, you know, we just wanted to check in on what he's up to and where his life went and, you know, keep things that way. But instead it's sort of, um, you know, I don't know if, if, if you want, if you want to, uh, a documentary that's sort of, I don't know about a counterpoint, but does things in a, I don't know to say that it's in a more honest way in terms of how it's put together because I have some questions about it, but, uh, (laughs) But in it certainly doesn't have the problem of dishonesty that that uh, searching for Sugarman has, and that's the uh, episode of the Reply All podcast called "The Case of the Missing Hit." Have you, hmm. have you heard this? No, I haven't. But I'll go look. Oh my for god! It now, well, you're in for maybe the best podcast of the last I don't know how many years. Reply All is this. You mean of, besides this one? It's better than this one. Okay. Uh, uh, by a hair. Um, so it's nice to meet a fan. Oh, there, nicely, nice save. So, so it's the uh, it's you know the podcast itself is is just a, a tech kind of related podcast where they look at different things around that have to do with technology and and whatever. Anyway, they get this uh, you this uh, listener who's saying like, there's this song that I remember from when I was young. And I sort of, I think he says in, in the episode that he was sort of um, singing some of the lyrics to his girlfriend. And she was like, that's not a real song. And he's like, no, 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 it's a real song. And he went online to find it and he could not find it anywhere. And he was typing in the lyrics and he was using apps to like try and figure out if he could identify it based on the melody and nothing, they, he couldn't find it. And so he enlists the help of this podcast to try and help him find that song to see a, if that song even existed. Right. And he ends up the, the real highlight of the episode is they want to try and Shazam the song so that they can figure out who it is, except of course they don't have the song. So they book a studio and some musicians and this guy from his own memory basically reconstructs the song (laughs) Uh, down to like the baseline, okay, and gets them to perform it. Oh my god! All right, I definitely need you to look up this to episode, to, and I, and I will. This episode, I will include a link to that in the show notes. It's okay. so, so you're amazing. you're up again. What else? What else do you have as an other side for uh, stories we tell? Um, this this will sound a bit funny, but for me, the movie is very tied in my mind to um, um, the master. Uh, interesting same year okay it's only because they came out the same year and i saw them both at tiff that year uh i think but in part because of that they've always sort of stuck in my mind as these movies about um you know the master is about a lot of other things but there's a really really big component of that movie that's about 
sort of memories and the effect of memories on people. You know, if, you, if you're looking for a movie that explores almost the, the dark side of that, you know, not entirely dark all the time, but sort of the ways in which people are haunted by these regrets of the things that they did or didn't do or the things that they wanted to say but didn't say or did say. Um, there's, there's also a fluidness in that film with the memories where you're not always entirely sure, is this a memory? Is this him entering his own memories like as though it's a dream? Um, but there's a way in which that film, through Joaquin Phoenix's character, plays with those, those ideas and plays with them formally that I think is really, really interesting. And I remember at the time that movie struck me in that way and stories we tell struck me that way. And they were also both like my favorite films of that year. If you want a good double feature, a very, very different movie, but you're going to have a good time. I mean, I will say that the like stories we tell the master is a film from that year that has bubbled up uh, for me over time. Like it's crazy the way things will ebb and flow um, as, as time goes on. Like, I mean that year, one of the top five movies for me was was Django Unchained, and now I want very little to do with that that movie. Yeah, I mean, it's not even a hindsight thing, exactly. With Django Unchained, I like that film, but it just hasn't, and I'm sure I would watch it and find it entertaining, but it's just hasn't stuck yeah, in no. the same way. It's, 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 and a lot of movies haven't. I mean, it, but but something like master something like like something like stories we tell where i put it on and it's just as powerful or the master which just had a nice 70 millimeter run at the light box um earlier this year that's just an incredible it's an incredible movie yeah and that's that, uh, that's really, what really i is. that's what i love about the art form is the same way that films can kind of rise and fall as you have chance to consider them as you have different experiences as they have a chance to settle and you know like you you get kind of more to latch on to out of them in terms of performances and that kind of thing like i mean you know this is this is a film that you watch now and you're like oh Jesse Plemons is in the background. Oh, Rami Malek is in the background, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, yeah. also to our, our ultimate kind of theme for this episode of truth and honesty, there is a, there's a great moment in, in the middle of the master where somebody challenges Lancaster Dodd in terms of his theory. And he's like, you know, you are selling this idea to people and you know that it is not possible. And yet you profess it to be true. And Lancaster yeah. Dodd just basically blusters his way through because he's a great orator and he has a way of framing words and then punctuating it with a term like pig fuck. Um, that, that really, again, cuts to this, this core idea of what you are selling people on. Is it true? Is it honest? Is it, is it something you are coming at from a genuine place? You know, whether it's, self-betterment or recounting a tale or whatever it happens to be um so yeah i mean it's a it's a strange association between those two movies and it's certainly autobiographical yeah you a, saw them both very per, yeah very very personal association but but, yeah. uh, but i recommend i recommend people give it a shot because they might see some uh, some points of connection and if they don't at least they'll have watched an amazing movie i agree well i've got a weird one to kind of end us off uh with in terms of an other side and actually it has a uh, 
nifty little tie-in to your last one. So this is a film from 2007, which when you consider the talent involved right down to the director, it'll usually be considered a lesser work, but I think it still has some value. Um, when's the last time you thought about Charlie Wilson's War? Um, Never? <laughs> no, uh, that's not true, actually. No, I, I was talking about it with somebody not long ago because oh. I was having a conversation about uh, uh, the writer of that film. <laughs> Who was the writer of that film? I, the, the director was Mike Nichols. Oh, it's because it's it's written by Aaron Sorkin, which I probably should have guessed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Charlie Wilson's War, mm-hmm. 2007. Also has a wonderful, wonderful Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Yes, it does. And that's, I mean, that's the connection to the master for sure. It's it's basically the reason yeah. to see it is, is Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Amy Adams, by the way. Her, I remember in it less, but I, I totally believe yeah. that It's just funny that both of them are also in the master. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Um, so Charlie Wilson's War, it's this story of a Texas congressman who basically manages to stoke the arming of the Afghanistan army in their conflict with the Soviet Union back in the 80s. Um, that congressman is played by Tom Hanks. Not one of his best performances. Um, he is uh, enabled by a donor played by Julia Roberts. An interesting performance by her, but also not necessarily one of her best performances. But what I love about this movie is its ultimate point. And to get to its ultimate point, you go to Phil Seymour Hoffman as this the CIA, CIA bureaucrat yeah. who is really the one behind the scenes making Charlie Wilson's whims happen. And in the late going of this movie, he tells this parable of what happens after we stop telling a particular story. You know, you're going to hear me telling this, but you need to imagine Phil Seymour Hoffman. That a much better actor is doing it. Yeah, there's that. But I mean, listen, if if I'm going to be honest here, I might as well, after 10 years of podcasting, part of my microphone cadence is actually emulated after Phil Seymour Hoffman in Almost Famous. When you hear him talking on the phone, <laughs> I, I, it's it's part of it is just a pure fandom. Part of it is just mimic, which I happen to do. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a little behind the curtain thing for you. If you're wondering where I get this demeanor, it's one part of it is Phil Seymour Hoffman as uh, Lester Bangs. So he tells this parable. He says, there's this little boy on his 14th birthday. He gets a horse. And everyone in the village says, how wonderful. The boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse and he breaks his leg. And everyone in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out and all the young men go off to fight, except the boy who can't use his legs all messed up. And everyone in the village says, how wonderful. And then Tom Hanks pranks in and says, now the Zen master says, we'll see. The idea being that you've just armed the Afghanistan army to beat your enemy, the Soviet Union, and how wonderful, but meanwhile, we should wait and see. And of course, now with the you know benefit of hindsight, we all know how that worked out. And that, I think, is my point yeah. of telling a story that, it, you know, kind of what that, uh, that, uh, alias grace quote that starts off stories we tell in that we don't know it's not a story at all same sort of idea is you know putting stories we tell out into the world may have been 
the best thing that Sarah Polly's ever done, or it may be the worst thing that she's ever done. Like, I mean, maybe there's a reason why she hasn't directed a film since. Um, and that's, you know, that's the we'll see. Or maybe it was the best thing she's ever done, and there will be all kinds more of great stories to come, and we'll see. Uh, it's It's weird, because I would never go to bat to say that Charlie Wilson's War is really a... It's certainly not a great movie. I don't even know if it's necessarily a good movie, but it's got interesting shit in it. And that, and that performance and that line is one of those things of how, you know, you come away from something and maybe it was bad, but maybe it's, we'll see. Well, there we go. That is the sixth dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. And I'm so thankful that Corey Tad was able to come by. Come on back on Monday, June 15th for our seventh dispatch, where we will be discussing Can You Ever Forgive Me from two years ago. Um, Corey's around. He's not really on Twitter anymore, but um, I'll uh, put some links to some of his uh, writing from the past in the show notes. Um, and uh, hopefully we will have some more of his words in the future because you're good, dude. I don't know if I've ever told you that before, but you're a damn good writer. Well, I mean, uh, thank you. You're I, welcome. Yeah, I need to, it's true. I, I need to write more. I, uh, so, I do. Don't I, we all, but yeah. <laughs> speaking of yeah. my site where there is sometimes some writing, but not as much recently is the matinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes by going to the matinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, um, uh, basically anywhere that you find podcasts, my show is there. If it's not, let me know, uh, and I'll put it on your platforms of choice. And you tell me, it. Ryan. Yes. What? What? When are you getting your uh, hundred million dollar Spotify deal? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm right in line. Let me tell you. Uh, if you want to drop <laughs> by and do an episode about one of the decade's best films, because Lord knows it looks like this lockdown is going to last a little bit longer than I first thought, um, or you have feedback about stories we tell, drop a dime in the comment section of the site. Email me Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter I am matinee underscore ca, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, buddy? No, just watch stories we tell. Definitely. For and, also, and also, oh. do, do yourself a favor. If you're in Canada or the States or you have a VPN or whatever and you have some money, just subscribe to the Criterion channel. Just just do that. Yes, it's, I... Uh, just do it. I, I have been nicely staked by one of my family members to a, uh, to a Criterion channel subscription and I have found a lot of great things out of there. And I mean, it's it's... I would expect people think that it's all highfalutin subtitled no. dry content i mean i i watched near yeah. dark i watched the 1980s vampire movie uh on it just recently yeah. there's all kinds of stuff no you, you gotta there there's so much stuff on there uh I really i mean they have great uh, now i'm just doing an ad for criterion channel <laughs> but but trust me you're in quarantine you have nothing better to do educate yourselves uh have a good time they've got great curated selections the, the best feature is that they have a whole page with all of the stuff that's expiring at the end of each month. It's a great way to light a fire under your butt to actually watch some stuff that you've been meaning to, or maybe some stuff that you haven't heard of before. It's, it's great. That's, it's that's direction. What I've been doing. Like that, that's that's actually what I like about that feature most is that it gives you just a little bit of a nudge because I mean, even if you create, yeah. you know, all of these, all of these platforms have ways to add features to your list, but then it just becomes a never ending to watch pile. It's a great right. way of pulling something to the top of the stack. Yeah. I mean, la last, uh, sorry, not, yeah. Last night I watched, um, Orlando, the Sally Potter oh, film, which I've been movie. meaning to see for, for a long time. 
incredible movie. Such a and good movie. And the reason that I the reason that I finally watched it was because it was going to expire. It's going to yeah. expire in a few yeah. days. So yeah. you know, yeah. if by the time May, this episode goes live, people won't even be able to see it. So seek out Orlando. Ah, that's disappointing. I know, I know but, it. I know. Uh, but but just think of all the other films that you will not miss because exactly. you now are paying attention to Very what good. I just said. For Corey, yeah. I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person. Oh,